man out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone The guy behind you won't leave you alone Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. Today we have as our guest Donald Nesbitt, the Executive Vice President of Local 372, which represents 25,000 non-pedagogical staff in our public schools. He's also the political action chair of DC 37, New York City's largest municipal union. He'll tell us what he thinks of the health and safety protocols at our schools, whether he thinks there should be a remote option for students, his union's view of mayoral control, and why they were one of the first unions to endorse Eric Adams, our likely next mayor. But first, some local news. The vaccine mandate deadline was last Monday, and the vast majority of teachers, principals, and other school staff did get vaccinated. But there were still shortages at many schools, especially paraprofessionals, apparently, which caused much disruption as the week went on. Hearings were held last week of the state Senate about the city's plan for billions in additional federal and state funds over the next three years. It appeared that several senators were not satisfied with the clarity of the city's plan, their failure to listen to parents and teachers about how the money should be spent, and their refusal to spend funds on what is the top priority of most parents and teachers in New York City, namely class size reduction. They were also quite frustrated with DOE's refusal to tell them how many kids are currently enrolled in our public schools. The DOE insisted on waiting till October 31st or later to disclose that information. I'll put the link to the video of the hearings and to my testimony in the resources section of the podcast and the blog. There were also hearings at the city council last week with a lot of questions about the school safety protocols and whether they're strong enough, given there is little COVID testing happening in our schools and the mayor suddenly reversed on whether students would be quarantined when there were infected other students in their class. Now that he says no classroom quarantine for any students who are socially distant. However, there's little or no social distancing happening in our schools, according to many teachers and principals. Also, many parents testified angry that given all these uncertainties that they are being refused a remote option for their kids. And instead, some who are keeping their kids home for the purposes of safety have actually been visited by ACS, the Administration of Child Services, for suspicion of child neglect. Finally, on Friday, it was announced that the mayor plans to revamp New York City's much criticized gifting and gifted and talented program that tests kids at the age of four, separates them out, and has a segregating effect on our schools, as the vast majority of students who are tested gifted by this controversial exam are white and Asian, while most kids in our schools are Black and Latinx. A few words about this program. There's no research that backs the benefits of separating kids out so early according to the results of any one standardized test, and much research against it. The question is why the mayor waited so long to the very end of his eight years in office to do this. He promised to reform the gifted program when he first ran for office in 2013. 
In 2019, his own school diversity advisory group advised him to eliminate the program as is and establish a system-wide enrichment program instead that would benefit all kids. And last year, his own hand-picked members on the panel of education policy voted against approving the contract that is used to assess four-year-olds. Because the mayor waited so long, it will be very easy for our next mayor to reverse this decision. I have also real concerns about how the new program will be implemented. The plan they announced includes creating seven new teams to train kindergarten teachers on, on how to recognize their students' strengths and weaknesses. And then starting in second grade, all children will be assessed regularly in all subjects so more advanced learners can get special treatment, either push in or pull out. This might be even worse than the current system, which only separates out 4% of students. It actually sounds to me like more top-heavy bureaucracy and more standardized testing, which is just what our kids don't need, with little help or support for teachers to actually individualize instruction for their students, given class sizes of 25, 30, or more. Instead, I believe the mayor should have paired the elimination of the gifted program with a program to start lowering class size starting in the earliest grades. That would be an initiative with proven results for all kids and a popular one besides. But now I'd like to turn to my guest, Donald Nesbitt, who wears many hats. He is the executive vice president of Local 372, which represents nearly 25,000 non-pedagogical staff in our public schools. And he's also the political action chair of DC 37, New York City's largest municipal union. Donald, thanks so much for joining us today on Talk Out of School. Thank you. Thank you for having me um, on Talk Out of School. Um, thank you for bringing me um, here today. Um, I come here today representing the uh, almost 25,000 members of, of Local 372, DC-37, um, and that's what I'm going to do here, just advocate on their behalf. But can, you tell us, yeah, can you tell us which kinds of school personnel your union represents? So in, in schools, we represent the uh, school aides, uh, family workers, uh, school lunch employees, our community titles, um, the community titles. Within the community title, you have community associates, which the parent coordinators fall under, community assistants and community coordinators. Um, a lot of them work in Tweed and the several different central offices around New York City, over 100 central offices. Then we have school crossing guards who, who we represent as well. And we have SAPIS um, counselors as well um, who we represent in schools. They help with drug intervention in families. Um, they do intervention. Um, they, they, they do prevention uh, beforehand. And um, some of the mental health services that we're going to need for our students uh, moving forward after COVID, our SAPIS are, are there to assist. They are ready trained and ready to go. coordinators, but not school secretaries. Is that right? No, not school secretaries. School se secretaries fall under the United Federation of Teachers. Okay. All right. So um, the other school staff that you do not represent are building maintenance and repair people, bus drivers, or school safety agents. Is that right? Correct. So can you tell us a little bit about your own personal life experience and work experience in the schools and how you rose through the ranks to become the executive vice president of Local 372? Yes, I can. Um, I always, um, I'm glad that you asked that question because I'm all glad to tell that story. Um, a lot of people 
they see you with a title. Um, and so I, I like to put it this way. I said, they, they see the, the glory, but don't know the story. So for me, in 1998, I started out as a senior school lunch helper. Uh, working in the schools. Uh, for those who don't know, that is the person who performs the heavy lifting uh, within the kitchen, lifting the pots, the pans, um, cleaning the pots and pans, cleaning grazing pans, right? All of the heavy lifting um, in the school kitchen. Um, and then in by 2001, I was an assistant cook, and then I became a cook um, all 17 years total uh, before deciding to run for office, getting involved in the union and running for office within the union um, under the leadership of Sean uh, D. Francois, the first who is the president of Local 372. Um, but but that's... that's as, a, as, a, as a chapter leader first, or how does it work? Yeah, so so anyone, any member is able to run for office in the local um, but I was a chapter leader. Um, I was the secretary of the monthly annual chapter, the chapter that represents all of the monthly annuals, all of the full-time employees within the school lunch chapter. So you have cooks, you have loaders and handlers who work on the trucks. Um, you have um, HACCP monitors who monitor the kitchens. Um, that chapter, I was the secretary, and it's ironic, I was actually secretary under the chapter chair, um, and that was Sean DeFrancois the first, um, also. So we both actually come from the same chapter. You rose through the ranks together, right? Yes, pretty pretty much. If you were in the same chapter, does that mean you worked in the same school? No. Uh, so so uh, President Francois was actually a loaded handler. He worked on the trucks and in the warehouse, uh, but but he was he started out as a cook as well. Um, and and we met each other actually through the union. Um, I he was already involved. Um, he grew up around the union. Um, I was in the schools. I was a shop steward. Um, and from becoming a shop steward, I began to go to union meetings. I, I brought some ideas to the floor. I challenged some notions um, there. Um, but there was a lot of learning that I had to do, right? So it was okay for me to challenge things, but I knew that I had to learn some things. And as I learned more, I said, oh, this is how this works. And I took that information back to the workplace and actually made it 10 times, 100 times better for the workers who I worked with um, as their steward. And then I ran to become a chapter chair and all of those things and continued to learn and then when President Francois decided to run for president, I ran on his ticket as the executive vice president. Oh, that's great. Um, how did you become the political action chair of DC 37, your parent union? And how many people are in that union? So for DC 37, I became the political action chair um, after being elected as vice president um, to DC 37 um, a few years back. Um, that is the committee that I was actually appointed to um, by the now president of DC 37, Sean D. Francois I. Um, he's the president of DC 37. Um, and that is the committee that I was appointed to to um, to chair. Um, DC 37 is made up of 150,000 members um, all across all city agencies. Um, if you name the city agency, we have somebody in there. Um, yeah, so 150,000 members, and that's how it became packed here. Now, let's turn to the vaccination issue, which, as you know, is a very controversial issue among many of your members. 
um, before, before the vaccination mandate actually happened, teachers were supposed to get tested and there was in-school testing offered. Were your members offered in-school testing at any time or was it only teachers and students? So we were actually offered testing. Um, it was, I believe, 10% testing. So not every member was getting tested. It was random testing. Uh, but we were hearing some of the things the same as um, what discussed on the hearing the other day, where um, I was getting phone calls that some of our members were asking to be tested and were turned away. Right. So Mark Traeger, who's the chair of the Education Committee, talked about that at the hearing, saying teachers who suspect that they might be infected, whether they're vaccinated or not, were asking for in-school testing and DOE was refusing them. So you heard that too. Yes, we've we've got those phone calls as well. Um, and as uh, Chairman Traeger said, um, our members were doing the same thing. They wanted to be responsible, whether vaccinated or unvaccinated. They hear someone is infected in their school building. They're requesting to be tested and they were turned away until no, um, they could not be chest, uh, tested. In some cases, we heard uh, where members were actually in line to be tested and they were told to get out of the line and go back to um, their work location uh, within the building. So we were hearing the same kind of reports that the teachers were getting. It's so incomprehensible to me. And the response of the DOE and the Department of Health did not make any sense either. This is Leonie Hameson, co-host of Talk Out of School, WBAI-FM 99.5 and WBAI.org. I'm here with Donald Nesbitt, Executive Vice President of Local 372, which represents nearly 25,000 workers in our public schools. Donald, many of your members worked heroically throughout the time that schools were closed last year and the year before, making lunch and providing supplies for families who needed them. Can you talk a little bit about that? So, yes, I want to uh, say those are the unsung sung hero um, and sheroes of our um, of the pandemic. Um, the President Francois and myself, we actually were out there with them. Um, in the beginning of this pandemic, they weren't given things like PPE um, and the necessities just to be safe uh, within locations. Um, and so I have to say Borough President Adams uh, was the first to call and say, hey, I have a truckload of PPE. Um, let me get it to you all. And he actually physically came out um, to corners to give PPE to school crossing guards and to the lunch employees. Yeah, but they, the workers themselves did, did a tremendous job. Um, in some cases, um, being put back in locations when they themselves were infected, I think I said that at the hearing, they were pushed back into locations and told that they had to go to work. Um, the city's policies throughout COVID were irresponsible, to say the least. Um, they did not... Yes. So, so the policy, the policy originally um, started out that if you, if you tested positive for COVID, um, that you would go home, you would quarantine, right? And everyone would quarantine who was in that location. That policy then changed to everyone didn't need to quarantine, right? Then it went to um, the person who was infected, if they didn't, they didn't have, the union requested that the person who was infected 
um, test negative before a return to work. Um, and the DOE said that's not necessary. They can just return. So after their quarantine, what we found in some cases, and if you remember this, some people, even after quarantine in those days, were still testing positive, right, for COVID. And they were told by management that they had to return back to work because their quarantine period was over. So at the risk of affecting others. Told the people who are infected, quarantine for eight or 10 days and then come back. But but your union and and the medical doctors involved in your union said maybe that quarantine wasn't long enough and that they should actually wait till they test negative. Is that right? Yes. We we said, so the CDC rules are just the minimum guidelines, right? But you can do a lot more as management to protect them. And in a lot of cases, every suggestion that we were coming up with wasn't necessary for them. Um, it's as long as they quarantine seven days, 10 days, whatever it was, the, the requirement was from the CDC, which we all know that changed hundreds of times too. Um, it, it was, they can now return back to work and it wouldn't be a problem. And we told them if a person is still testing positive, they shouldn't be in the workplace at risk of infecting others and, and those workers bringing it home to their families, right? And that wasn't a, that wasn't a priority of the DOEs. So let's move to the vaccination issue now. Um, do you know how many of your members of Local 372 got vaccinated by the deadline last week and how many did not? So, so we out of the nearly twenty five thousand members, we only have about six hundred um, at the deadline who weren't vaccinated. So, the vast majority of members did get vaccinated. Uh, just two weeks before, it was about six thousand, over six thousand. I mean, a lot of those workers did go to get vaccinated uh, before the uh, mandate. So that's excellent. That's a great um, percentage, but. One of the really interesting things about the testimony you gave, I thought, last week was your criticism of DOE in the city for not having any trainings or briefings for your members to reassure them of the safety of the vaccine. Is that right? Yes. So so the group of members that I represent um, are the majority are uh, black, are Latino, and are women. Um, and those groups, if you look at the groups in society in general, we're not even talking about within the workforce in the city, those are the groups that are more hesitant um, to take the vaccine. Um, and it is because some people, some, so there are some reasons that I think are, are out of this world, but then I do not sit here and not recognize that people have legitimate reasons why they wouldn't want to, right? History has shown us um, that within communities of color, there have been racist practice practices within medicine, right? And so people have true hesitancy. And as a leader, I wasn't going to sit by and say, these are not legitimate and let's not recognize that, right? So there are some things in my testimony that I said that the city of New York failed on that they could have done. Um, last year, most of our members were in schools uh, or, or some were working remotely. The city does mandatory training uh, with OSHA, OSHA training, bloodborne pathogen training, and we're mandated to do sexual harassment training, right? Those are three just to name, but we do a lot more, right? But those are three just to name where workers have to sit down for about a 30-minute training um, after they finish 
they sign off that they have received the training, the city could have done the same thing with the vaccine. If you knew that you were moving towards eventually doing or possibly doing a, a vaccine mandate, I think if you go into the details of what the vaccine is, or what does it do to your body? I think a lot of our members would have not been so hesitant. There would have been a lot more people the anxious to get the vaccine. Um, even myself, I got to say this, and I, I'm, I'll be clear. I was one that was hesitant. Uh, my first dose was only two weeks ago. Um, so I've, I've, I've been hesitant. And, and my, my first intention was to get my vaccine in March when I was at the first chance of me being able to do so. I went to my doctor, I checked my blood pressure, I checked everything to make sure that I was fine. The doctor says, Mr. Nesbitt, you're fine. You're okay. You're good to go. I said, I have one last question. Can I go and get the vaccine? I said, because I'm planning to do it in the next two days. And she said, I can't tell you that. That was my doctor's response. And so when she said you know she she told me she didn't go into too much detail um but she did say that she can't tell me that it's for me um and i don't know if that was the fda not approving it and she as a doctor didn't want to say it but she didn't go into too much detail so for me i hesitated when i'm hearing that from my doctor who i trust i'm like uh, you know what, let me let me do some more research. Let me dig into this more. I started to look into what mRNA was. I looked, I started to look into the differences in the vaccines, Johnson and Johnson versus Pfizer and Moderna. So um in in me educating myself, I began to talk to other members about those things. And what I was finding, a lot of members actually didn't understand, right? Um, some of those members, after I got my first dose, they actually went out, they text me on my phone and say, hey, Mr. Nesbitt, I went and got mine. You encouraged us, right? Uh, we did some homework. We did some research. The articles that you send us were, were helpful. Um, but I think the city could have done a lot more in the workplace. And it, I just hope that even with the students, as they possibly may be moving towards a, a, vac a mandatory vaccination for students, that they educate the families um, as much as they can because parents are going to be hesitant um, to, to vaccinate their children. It, we, we see that in um, the testimony the other day from the DOE, only 192,000 have actually put in um, consent forms for their, for, their, um, for, for their children to even be tested, right? Um, so there's going to be some hesitation, and I just hope that the city actually does a lot more in um, educating versus saying, hey, I'll give you $100 um, to do this, because I think the $100 thing and Black people being put on commercials, I think is more of an insult um, to rather than something that educates um, and teaches families and people of the safety uh, of what the vaccine is trying to actually do you to go on a commercial or, or do a training uh, would you say yes yes um that's fine that's fine yes um when you know one of their big pushes was to get kids vaccinated at school the first few weeks of school the kids who are eligible 12 and up did they make that available to your workers as well or not to be vaccinated at their schools yes you I'm know 
Yes, I believe um, everyone that worked in the school building, if they had the vaccination, um, if they had a vaccination post there um, at the school, it was available to everyone in that building. So one of the other things I found really interesting about your testimony was that um, you, you did mention that there were shortages of some workers at schools last week and that you yourself filled in at a school doing food deliveries. Can you talk about that? Yes. So uh, for school food employees, um, there were already a shortage of a thousand workers uh, from last year to this year. Um, The the differences in last school year versus this school year, when school started this year, there were already um, a thousand less workers uh, within school food. Um, So nothing to do with the vaccine. They were just uh, there were just shortages in general. They just had retired and decided not to come back. Yes. So people have retired or people have left the job based on their treatment during the pandemic. Right. Uh, A lot of. Yeah. A lot of workers felt like, hey, they don't care about us. We were left in in positions Uh, when the mayor mentioned um, those who he was clapping for school food employees. If you go back. We, and we can go into the archives of his press conferences every day. I think there was only one day where he actually highlighted school food employees and, I, and, and school crossing guards. And they were out there either directing the public, feeding the public. School food employees were feeding 500,000 uh, families a day. Um, and to be recognized one time, um, a lot of the workers were like, you know, enough is enough. They, they don't care about us. I got phone calls from a worker in District 19 in Brooklyn who simply said, I know we're probably not going to get hazard pay. She said, I see the way the U.S. Senate is handling handling this. She said, all I want is a thank you. She said, when I turn on the news, the mayor doesn't say anything about us. And she said, I salute the doctors. Her daughter actually was a nurse in a hospital. So she said, I salute and praise all of the healthcare workers. But when are we going to be recognized? All I want is a thank you. And that didn't happen. And, and, and so to your, to your question, there were a thousand shortages already um, in the schools. Um, and so after the vaccine mandate, there were actually some losses um, as well, additional uh, workers who are now on unpaid leave. Um, and so the first two days of the uh, vaccine mandate going into effect, I was in a school in Queens where one worker showed up to work and refused to leave. And I had to come there to make sure that she wasn't arrested uh, because the police and EMS was there. She was strapped down to a gurney uh, when, or, or a stretcher uh, when I came there. And all I could say to the chances people is don't arrest her. If, if she has to be evaluated, you have to do what you have to do. And I know that she has to leave, but do not arrest her and make her life worse. Um, and, and they took out, she wasn't arrested, but it's a shame that we're at that point, right? Um, then the very next day, um, I get a call from a cook in the Bronx as I'm visiting a school in Harlem who says, I've had it, Mr. Nesbitt. We have a $3,000 um, delivery here. And she said, it's just me and a helper. My helper and I, we're trying to put together an operation for students now in the cafeteria and for and put together nine bags for nine classrooms upstairs. And it's just two of us. And she said, I've had it. She, you know? 
So I looked at the, it was 800 and something students that they were feeding. Uh, 400 and something in the cafeteria and 400 and something upstairs with just two of them. And, and the delivery comes in. So I said to her, I said, well, give me the school. And she gave me the school and I went from Harlem, from the school in Harlem straight into the Bronx in District 11 in that school. Um, as Councilman uh, Riley uh, mentioned on the hearing the other day, that was actually his daughter's school. Um, I normally call the elected official in the neighborhood to say, hey, are you in the area, you know, come by and see this. I didn't even have time to do that. When I got there, I saw the delivery. I told the cook, I said, I see that you haven't dated anything. Just give me the marker. I said, I'm going to put this away for you guys. And she said, no, no, you're the executive vice president. No, this doesn't, you you know, you don't have to do that. I don't want to put you to work. I said, I, I, I will not be here and see you all struggle. And so I put that delivery um, away. It took a few hours, as you can imagine, $3,000 of merchandise is a lot. Um, but, but I wasn't going to see them struggle. I stayed there from the time I got there until the end of their day. I mean, the three of us actually left together. Um, so, yeah, those are some of the shortages that are happening throughout the city. Um, there is a shortage in um, senior school lunch helpers or the heavy-duty uh, workers uh, within a cafeteria. Um, I can, I know that you have a network. I can send you um, information on where those shortages are so you can send it out too, because I know there are people out there who actually need jobs. Yeah, please do, please do. I, I'm, I wonder if a lot of those, the people who was, were working in these areas are now working as delivery men for Amazon and stuff, because there's been just such a huge growth in the demand for package delivery. Um, and yes. I wonder if you think they are, you, know, you probably don't think that they're getting paid enough, but is that an active live issue in the union, the, the pay salary um, parity and, and stuff? So we have pay inequities in, in almost all of the titles uh, that we represent. Uh, you, you look at, um, you mentioned the school food employees, yes, um, the tremendous work that they did during this time, yes, they should um, they should be getting paid more uh, for the work that they do. Uh, but you look across all of our titles and the tremendous work that they um, have done throughout the pandemic. Um, you look at, you mentioned earlier, the parent coordinator. It was a parent coordinator every day that sent a text message to me, my sons, uh, both of my sons, their parent coordinator from their school that just uplift my spirit during a pandemic, right? We were all hearing that reports of people dying, those close to us who were dying. And this parent coordinator was dynamic and amazing. Um, she uplift my spirit with her text messages every morning. Um, you look at what the school aides were doing. You look at what the family workers, what the sappers were doing and calling families and making sure that students are logging on to um, to assist. They were assisting the teachers, making sure that students were logging on. They were finding students who hadn't logged on for weeks at a time um, and making sure. So that people know what sappers is, they help with attendance as well as other things, right? Yeah, no, family workers actually work with attendance. So the SAPs are substance abuse prevention and intervention specialists. Okay, yeah. um, so mm -hmm. they actually, they deal with the social, emotional uh, component within a student. Um, they look at that. They also do prevention from, uh, from drugs, um, from drinking. Um, they go, and if a student, if they find that a student is actually 
on drugs or things like that, they actually intervene and go and sit with the family and make sure that the family is a support mechanism to that student um, and in weaning that student off whatever drugs it may be. So the sappers, that is what the sappers actually do. Um, but during this time, I want to say all of the members, you look at the central office staff who around the city just stepped up and made sure um, anywhere where they were needed, they were going to step up and make sure that the system actually ran. Uh, President Francois likes to say all the time, our members are the foundation that makes the school system run, and without a foundation, it doesn't run. Um, but during this time, tremendous, tremendous, tremendous job that all of the workers actually did um, to make sure throughout the pandemic that this was going to work. Um, even the school crossing guards who were just making sure that the students who were coming to school and that the members of the public, which which wasn't a usual thing that school crossing guards normally do, uh, they normally assist the students, um, and and they just assisted everyone to make sure their families were getting um, to locations where they were feeding sites and anywhere that they needed to get to food with the food insecurities. Um, I want to say these these are the heroes and sheroes um, that that for me um, should should receive everything. Um, that they asked for. But uh, unfortunately, we find those pay inequities uh, within the titles that we represent. Let's, let's move to what's happening now in the schools with the health and safety protocols. Aside from the vaccines, your people work in the lunchrooms that many people report as hugely overcrowded and, and with masks off because obviously kids have to eat. And there are also a lot of schools with very crowded hallways, and your people work sometimes as, as hall monitors, I understand. Um, are you and your members concerned about the overcrowding and the safety protocols in terms of social distancing or the lack thereof? Yes, we, we are tremendously concerned. Uh, we, we are tremendously concerned with the lack of social distancing. Um, I want to say the mayor and the DOE, um, as I said on the hearing, um, the incompetence that we've seen in March of 2020, uh, we, we see it now. Uh, you would think that a year and a half has passed that they would learn from what happened last time. And, you know, when people were calling for a remote option, we were saying, yes, a remote option is definitely should be there. Unless we can ensure that there's 100% safety for everyone returning back into a building, uh, we should not have the, the numbers um, of students returning back to students that the mayor was pushing for. You know, um, you look at some of the buildings where we work, the School Construction Authority, which is one entity that works with schools, their own building, the mayor uh, rushed them back to work on September 13th, only to find that they had no, um, they had an inadequate HVAC system. The, the vents that were supposed to be put in uh, weren't put in properly, and all of these kind of things, right? Um, no safety protocols in place for our members. And so we are concerned when members are in a, in a cafeteria and it is overcrowded. Um, I want to say Mark uh, Colanzaro, the principals union, their principals have been working with as little guidance uh, from leadership at the DOE, but they've been doing a tremendous job um, in the school that I went to uh, the cook told me to take a look at the cafeteria. The principal has separated as best as she can um, the students uh, within the classrooms and um, the lunchroom. 
um, as possible. But I want to say when you speak to a lot of principals, when we go into schools and say, hey, what's going on here? The principals tell us um, that they they are trying to do their best, but they have little guidance from the leadership at the DOE. So they're trying to figure it out. And in some cases, they're trying to be medical experts um, in figuring out what is a, a social distance between students, what is the correct distance. Um, as we saw on the hearing the other day, uh, Chairman Traeger showed what three feet was to the DOE and three feet. He couldn't even squeeze through that space, meaning it was too close. And the example that I gave of my own son coming home and saying, look, um, to my wife and I, we're too close to other students in the classroom. We're even closer now than we were last year. And I told him, spread out your arms, son. And he would spread out his arms. But like I said, not every child is 6'4 with a 6'5", 6'6", wingspan, right? And able to distance himself. And even with him doing that, if he does that and he moves a desk, he might receive disciplinary action um, at the school level for doing something that... that, Yes. Yes, trying to protect himself. And so that's... That's what we're seeing at the DOE right now. So one of the things that Michael Mulgrew, the head of the UFT, spoke about at both the state and the city hearings was how they changed their definition of three feet distancing from desk to desk to nose to nose. So actually they are measuring the DOE, realizing that their schools are too overcrowding to do real social distancing, uh, changed their formula so that only as, as, as long as noses weren't, um, any nearer than three feet that that was appropriate social distancing, which is ridiculous, of course. Yes. So um, I'm just, um, you know, a lot of us are concerned and supporting the parents who are pushing for a remote option, because not only would that allow their kids to be safer in their own estimation, but fewer kids in school. And the schools, many of them are are hugely overcrowded, and this situation has not gotten better under under uh, Mayor De Blasio, and certainly not since the since COVID. Yeah, and, um, and, and if I just could um, add to that, you know, even looking at the central office staff, because we have hundreds of locations that with DOE where we have members there who are doing a tremendous job. But going back into buildings that are unsafe while the mayor is saying that the Delta variant is more potent, more contagious than any other variant, he he canceled social distancing uh, protocols within those spaces. He took away partitions. You know, he this just takes away the trust of workers. How can they ever trust that you're telling us that this is the worst thing that is that that is happening throughout the pandemic or the worst variant rather, and yet you're removing the safety protocols and keeping us safe, right? Um, and so um, I echo what the workers in those locations are saying that hey, it was way too soon for all of us to be back at work uh, for five days at a time, and what we're seeing in some of those locations, even in some of the um, I know the Board of Retirement System is is in 65 Court Street, um, the Board of Headquarters. And within the first day, they had two COVID cases, right, as soon as they came back. Um, it's, it's It was just way too soon and irresponsible on the mayor's part to push for people to come back into spaces all while taking away those same safety protocols that had kept them safe the whole time. 
Right. This is Lainey Hameson, co-host of Talk Out of School, WBAI FM 99.5 and WBAI.org. I'm talking to Donald Nesbitt, Executive Vice President of Local 372, which represents nearly 25,000 non-pedagogical staff in our public schools. He's also the Political Action Chair of DC 37, New York City's largest municipal union. Um, does Local 372 and or DC 37 have a position on the DOE spending plan and uh, the mayor's refusal to use a significant part of these additional billions in federal and state funds to alleviate overcrowding to allow for social distancing or lower class size? Yeah, we do have a position. We we feel that he should that the money should be allocated and moved into um to providing a way for students to have remote learning and um. The class sizes, we, we heard reports the other day on the testimony that the DOE is moving towards maybe 50 kids may be okay. I'm at a time like this in classes uh, where we were pushing for smaller class sizes when there were 34 students, right, um, in a class. The, the mayor has been uh, negligent um, in this regard. Uh, even some of that federal money that actually came down, he could have used it and been reimbursed from the federal government um, in in places like uh, when we spoke of uh, hazardous pay uh, for, for, for workers uh, who were working during a pandemic. Uh, he refused to um, doing that when we came up with those kind of ideas. He, whoever is advising him is not doing a very good job. This is this is some of the worst that we're seeing in leadership um, that we've ever saw. So, of the mayor, um, the Assembly Education Committee is holding hearings next week on mayoral control, which will either lapse, be renewed, or amended um, this spring. Does um, Local 372 or DC 37 have a position on mayoral control? And will you be testi- testifying? So we we in the past we have supported um, mayoral control. Um, we moving forward, we still have an intense conversation on what our position is there. Um, this week, uh, we're still having conversation on that. So I'm not 100% sure on the testimony. Someone may be testifying. I'm not 100% sure that it will be me. Uh, but we're still having intense conversation on mayoral control and our position moving forward. You don't have a position on that issue? No. Okay. And now speaking of mayoral control, a DC 37 was one of the first unions to endorse Eric Adams, who is likely going to be our next mayor. Can you tell us about what went into the thinking behind this endorsement, uh, the process that went into it, and if there was something about his positions on education specifically that you support? So, so in supporting Eric and being one of the first to support Eric, um, there were a lot of extensive conversations that go on. Uh, something that we actually did that was that was new. We did a huge mayoral forum where we had all of the candidates come on, and we had over, I think it was about six hundred DC thirty seven members who chimed into the Zoom uh, or this mayoral forum. Uh, we then the, the political action screening, uh, which is the committee that I chair. Um, there are about 12, 13 other members of that committee. 
Uh, we did an intense screening where we asked questions uh, from education to um, positions on police brutality within communities of color. Uh, we went into EMS parity, where our EMS workers are not considered first responders, and so they're not paid um, the same as other first responders, as police and firefighters. Uh, EMS are not paid. So we went into those issues. Uh, but we went into several different issues there at the political action screening. Uh, we followed that process up with a, we did polling among the members that actually, um, that actually attended the mayor reform. Uh, we, what we saw there was it was a two to one. Uh, for Eric Adams among the members, um, it was resounding um, that the members actually wanted um, Eric Adams. Uh, we were going into work locations and just asking questions to see what the um, what the response would be. And the questions were basic questions like, hey, um, are you watching this this mayoral prime, uh, primary race? Um, who, who would you prefer? Right. And members were saying, um, Eric Adams, in one case in a school, all the way in the Bronx, uh, in, in Brooklyn, if we got that, that would be one thing, right? He's the borough president, but all the way up in the Bronx, um, close to Co-op City, a member said to me, Mr. Nesbitt, it better be Eric Adams or this union has a problem, right? And what 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 that meant, I don't know what it meant, right? But I didn't want to test her. Right. Yeah. Um, but 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 this is this is what we were what we, we were hearing. We kept hearing Eric's name. So conversations um, were ongoing. And we said if Eric is not a lot of people's number one, he may be their number two. Uh, we also uh, considered uh, during a pandemic, you 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 look at. You look at who has been with you during tough times. Right. Um, and. Like I said earlier, Eric was one in the very beginning when the DOE was negligent, the city was negligent. He backed up a truck into Boa Hall and told President Francois and myself, whatever you can carry of these masks is yours. Get it to your members. And then he went out there. He personally um, delivered masks to keep uh, workers safe um, during that time. And then the process, to end the process with DC-37, so we went there. It then goes to DC-37's entire executive board um, as a recommendation from the screening committee. The, the executive board um, actually voted um, to push Eric Adams forward as their recommendation. And then it goes to a body of over 300, um, 300 delegates from across the various locals in DC-37. And they overwhelmingly voted uh, for Eric Adams. Uh, when, if you can get a majority of 300 people to vote on anything, and a huge majority, um, we we it was a it was a tremendous task that went over maybe extended over two three months uh, before we made a, a, a actual endorsement of a candidate for mayor. Um, and so far, we we picked the winner. Um, we we we. We, we still have uh, to go to November 2nd um, and get them across the finish line, but um, so far, so good. But there was a... There, your members, it was a slam dunk for Eric Adams. There was no doubt that he was the number one guy. Yeah, you, like I said, you have some, you had some who recognized Scott Schringer as the controller. Uh, his name came up. 
um, amongst the members and some of the other locals. Um, they knew Catherine Garcia uh, because she was a commissioner at Sanitation, where we represent some workers there, um, and some of the locals. Um, there was several different candidates, but the overwhelming that we kept getting back was Eric Adams, Eric Adams, Eric Adams. issues that um, Eric Adams seems to be pretty clear on in terms of education is that he's a big supporter of charter schools. And his campaign got a lot of money from charter school supporters, including the hedge funders that uh, like charter schools. Uh, One of the questions I've always wondered about um, in terms of charter schools, and maybe you can answer this question, is that when co-located charters open weeks before DOE public schools, often toward the beginning or middle of August, much of the non-pedagogical staff is already there working uh, in the lunchrooms, et cetera, uh, for the charter school students. Isn't that true? Um, does this cut short their summer vacations and do they, do they get paid more for showing up early? And if so, who pays them, the DOE or the charter schools? Do you know? No, so the DOE actually pays them. They get paid through school food. Um, actually, the summer schedules, the way they work, people are actually rotated throughout the summer, and it's optional for the workers to work. Um, so in a lot of cases, whoever picks those last weeks of the summer, um, they're actually there to feed the students that are there. So in other words, um, they get paid more. It's optional for them to show up early, and they get paid directly by DOE and not by the charter schools. Correct. For the workers, for the hourly employees, they come in during those weeks. Um, they, they receive summer checks for the summer already. Um, if they work those additional weeks, they receive additional pay. Is that mostly school lunch workers or is it a whole raft of positions that come in early for the charter schools? No, it's mainly because the charter schools actually have their own staff. It's mainly school food employees um, who actually mm-hmm. are, are there. Um, in some cases, because it's the lunch program, you do have school aides who work that program, but they normally alternate between the month of July. Some school aides work and some work in August with the teachers who actually um, who actually supervise the program in the cafeteria during those months. Okay. Now, many charter school parents um, have, have discovered problems um, at their children's schools with overly harsh disciplinary practices and sometimes high suspension rates. Have your members witnessed this and does the union have concerns about this issue? So I myself, I worked in a building uh, over the summer session because as cooks, we rotate to other buildings too. I worked in a building where there was a charter school on the third floor of the building. Um, I witnessed those um, disciplinary practices within a cafeteria where students were made to not speak um, during during their time where they're supposed to be building social qualities um, and and interacting with other students. They were told not to speak, to fold their hands, to be soldiers. Um, Those practices were alarming to me um, as that was the first time that I actually physically saw it uh, with my own eyes. Uh, some of their practices, um, even within the school cafeteria, I walked in to see an administrator from the charter school in my refrigerator, and I asked him what was he doing there, and he told me the show goes on whether I'm working or not. 
And so he had keys. So what he what he was pretty much saying um, that he can that he has authority to be in my kitchen. Um, and rather, my schedule as a public employee allows for me to be there at six thirty, seven, um, seven thirty. If he needed to get in at five thirty, then he had the authority to do so, even though the Department of Health says otherwise. And the Department of Health says that someone with a license uh, needs to be in there at all times with a food handling certificate to be uh, specific. And that person is the cook that comes in the first person at 7.05, 7.30. But in some cases, um, in, in charter schools, it's like whatever whatever they want goes. Do you know what he was doing there? Excuse me? Do I... you know what he was doing there? I mean, what was he doing in the kitchen anyway? He was actually pulling his 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 food. Um, out of out of, out of the refrigerator to take upstairs to feed his children who were there uh, before the time that school food employees actually get to the school building. I see. So there, there's a big push to raise the state cap on charters. Many people have seen the ads on TV and on the internet, um, and it's a really um, a well-funded campaign by a lot of the charter school lobby, including the hedge funders that I spoke of earlier. Uh, does Local 372 or DC 37 have a position on whether the charter school cap should be increased? Well, we we do not want to. We we are not in support of the charter cap being raised uh, for for various reasons. Uh, within a school building, where people do not realize, um, for for one, there are certain restrictions that are on um, the the school building that may not be imposed on the charter school. Um, those restrictions being on on uh, funding in reference to school food, right? Um, if you look at the school food formula and how things work, um, you have to take certain components and eat cert- certain portions of food in or- order to get federal reimbursement. And that is how the whole the whole school uh, community survives, right? That is how you hire your teachers, defend, the, depending on the reimbursement and the budget that comes back to your school. If there's a, if there is an expansion um, in a charter school, in some instances, what we see in some school buildings is their students don't eat as long as they're not getting funding from the federal government. They can feed their students whatever they would like, and so the funding that normally would come into that school building doesn't come into that school building anymore. People may possibly lose jobs. Uh, pe- people do not understand that it is, it is bigger than us saying, "Hey, we need better education in our schools." Uh, we all agree on that. I think that's across the board that the Department of Education has to do better. Uh, but at the same time, there are certain factors that go into it that people may not know or realize or things of that nature. Before we got on the air, you also mentioned the um, different conditions in, in, inside the same building in terms of charter schools having uh, better facilities than the public schools in the same building. Is that right? Yes, in that same building that I worked in, um, I went from the first floor to the second floor where I saw um, things that were so computers and things that were so antiquated and like 1970s and 80s, right? Um, and then you go on the third floor and it's state of the art, you know, uh, it's like a different world, right? And so the inequities, even within the same building, if you look at what 
what's being provided to a student that may be on the third floor who may be related to a student that's on the second floor of that building. Um, it's just a tale of two cities in one building, and that just shouldn't be. Well, thank you so much, Donald Nesbitt, for being with us today to talk about the important work that local 372 members do in our schools um, and the union's view of the many of the important issues affecting our schools. I really appreciate that you took the time. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for actually having me on this show. Um, anytime there's an opportunity to advocate for the work that local 372 DC 37 members are doing, um, I'm always proud and honored to to be here and be an advocate for them. Thank you so much for having me. Um, look forward to working in the future on, on some things um, that we may um, align with together to work on. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Our show, Talk Out of School, is available as a podcast if you missed the live version. If you hear it through Apple, please leave a review. Also, please consider becoming a member WBAI or a special supporter of this show, Talk Out of School by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. We need the support of listeners to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in New York City that doesn't run ads. We'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, be careful and be safe, and thanks so much for listening. Morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone.